And welcome to Pints and Politics. Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program of all things political coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. In addition to this radio show, we are live streamed from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at, at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca and the podcast of tonight's show is, is uploaded the following day by noon. All right, and we also have a gathering of people at 5 p.m. at the uh, Garnet uh, every Thursday. Uh, joining tonight in the studio is our politics panel to talk about the year in review. What happened in local politics uh, this year in Peterborough and beyond, and why? And what might these events tell us about next year? So we have uh, Sylvia Sutherland, journalist and former mayor, a communications consultant and campaign executive Lauren Hunter, and writer and math teacher Tim Etherington. And somewhere in the snows of East City, we have Donald Fraser en route, and he will join us when he joins us. So welcome all. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Thank uh, of you. course, the two elections, uh, the provincial election on June 7th, the municipal election on October 22nd, dominated our local political scene this year. But before we dive into the weeds and start shredding individual campaigns, what about the larger political context that determines options that we are uh, sort of allowed to debate around our kitchen tables? I, I, I'm thinking of things like, of course, our federal government, the leadership of uh, Justin Trudeau, the leadership of the federal opposition parties, the enormous dark shadow of Donald Trump, the rise of populism and the rise of the far right. Uh, maybe they're not two different things. The the Canadian slash global economy, disruptive disruptive new technologies. Including in half an hour. In <laughs> half an hour. Uh, oh yeah, uh, changing d- demography, uh, corporate decisions made by multinationals like GEGM, and perhaps the most ominous shadow of all that no one wants to talk about: accelerating climate change. Now we could spend hours on, on these things. We only have fifty five minutes. So briefly, how about these macro influences on our local political scene? How do they show? up and how much do they matter oh i think they matter a lot and uh, just for example you know populism can be to the right or to the left and what we are seeing not in peterborough move the other way but what we're seeing generally speaking is a movement of populism to the right and i have always resisted comparing anything to nazi germany good for but you. i but i'm at the point now when you see swastikas publicly displayed in the streets of the United States, and I, I think we're getting very close. We don't have ovens, but we have the mentality is emerging that you know uh, would I think make that possible. And I, I think anyone of a certain age, which I think would be over thirty, is perhaps horrified. You know, when you start seeing swastikas, you know, spray painted in places. And I read something a while ago that. You know, as we move towards a time when people don't have an immediate memory of the Second World War, those who actually experienced it, lived through it, even as children, um, are, are, are getting much older right now. And once we lose that tangible history, these things become more uh, superficial. These things become become more manufactured, and, and, and the actual immediate horror of what they were seems to fade. Uh, what you said about populism, Sylvia, you're right, both left and right, and you know, populism is one of those terms that has now become a moniker to to signify the far right. And it, it, it is dangerous. You know, it is very much minority opinion, but the Nazis and the Bolsheviks were, were, were both were both minorities who were very, very loud. And, you know, as the year has gone on and watching things happen, you talk about macro terms, we have every right to be distressed and disturbed but by the rise of a very, 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 uh, you know, violent and aggressive uh, populist right. Uh, but they are, they are a minority, and we can't take solace in that. On the other hand, the thing that's a little bit quieter but much larger is the, the demographic change that's happening across all of society. And several recent elections have shown us that the voting public is getting younger. I mean, you know, I, I'm from Gen X, right? So we never had any bearing on anything. You, you um, qualify as yeah. a Peterborough youth. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Certainly a, in a, my terms. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but the, 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 you know, the rise in the power of millennial voters, which has been creeping up every single election, is really starting to assert itself. The last two elections we witnessed, the midterm elections in the states and the election in, in Peterborough, showed that despite, you know, silly stereotypes in the, in the media, millennials are starting to flex their muscles. And that is going to become the story that grows and grows each election. 
Yeah, and Lauren. And if I can jump in there, I was uh, reading something the other day that was sort of exploring um, that conversation about millennials and millennial voters and saying, you know, that millennial voters are not immune to some of these forces, to the the populism of the far right. And in fact, if you look at uh, who voted for Doug Ford, uh, that there were a lot of millennial men who voted for Doug Ford uh, for for all the reasons perhaps we might think. Uh, And so even if there are demographic shifts happening, that doesn't necessarily mean that the voting is going to swing one way or the other. It is sort of a new element we'll have to grapple with and see where it lands. And if you look what's happening in Europe, I mean, we've looked here. If you look at, you know, uh, what's happening in Italy, various places in Europe, you have Merkel going in a, in a year or so, what's going to happen in Germany. You have May in deep trouble and what's, you know, going to emerge in Britain. But this this push to the... People seem to want change. And sometimes it doesn't much matter what that change is. You're going to change, it's going to be better. But it really concerns me that in most instances lately, the change has been to the right. And yes. what is the appeal of a Doug Ford or a Donald Trump? And I think Lauren touched on something that, you know, I don't think we, we give enough voice to. And she said, you know, young millennial males. Uh, certainly not exclusive. You can find exceptions. But when we talk about far right, we talk about the alt right, we're talking about a male driven political um, uh, movement. Oh, have you uh, heard some women, though? I, of course I have. No, I'm saying there are yeah. that. But it, but if you if you if you look at the tropes and you look at the kind of things that go on there, the stars on the alt right, if they're female, tend to be people who look like fashion models. You know, they tend to fit within that with within that male gaze. If you want to, Faith Goldie, Faith Goldie, for example, yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it, again, I'm not saying this is all men, but there is a really, really deep sort of frustrated male misogyny that underpins the alt right. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't want to uh, uh, drag us into uh, minute analyses of uh, what's gone on in Peterborough, but am I alone in, in being surprised how well, uh, and I'm not paralleling the candidate's name I'm going to mention with the far right, but am I alone in, in being surprised about how well Jeff Westlake did in Monaghan, fin- finishing just over 200 votes behind Henry Clark. And he, he is fairly hard right. I mean, I watched uh, Taylor Darcell's uh, uh, video on uh, with him, a video infer- and uh, I was surprised that he did that well. Well, he worked very, very hard. Okay. And I think that accounts for maybe a good portion of it. Right. In fact. Yeah, I mean, I've expressed my opinion on Jeff. I don't need to get into it again, what I feel about his politics and his character. But uh, he is very deeply embedded within the Conservative Party. He worked right. for years for Dean Delmaster. He was Dave Smith's campaign manager. And we, we talked on previous shows about party lists and the advantage that gives you in a council election. And so he had a ready network. And I, and I know from working on a campaign in Monaghan Ward two cycles ago, that Jeff Westlake's strength was quite surprising. And his signs went up very fast uh, right at the beginning of the election and realized, well, you know, this is... This is the Conservative Party list. Right. Okay. We just sure. to say too that this was his second second crack at the can uh, yeah. in that ward, and so again you saw signs go up very fast. You know, lists from last time building on all of that. So yeah. I, I don't know if we can make a causal link uh, right, between right, these right. things mm-hmm. here, but uh, he certainly he certainly got his vote out, uh, and that shows a dedicated campaigner. Right. Now I did read out a list that could take us three days on air to go through, and I didn't want to distract you from it with my my uh, transition to Peterborough. But what about these other issues? That are sort of hovering over us, uh, what Trump is doing with the economy and trade and so on. How is that showing up for us here in Peterborough and going forward? Well, hopefully what Trump is doing isn't showing up. <laughs> I, 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 what, how is what Trump is doing? I think what Trump is doing is showing up here in Peterborough through the ages of the uh, what's happening at Pink Palace down in Toronto. Right. Uh, you know, we do have... I think a version of Trump light. We, we have an echo effect. We have an echo effect in Canadian politics, seen for several decades now, where you know political movements that happen in the states, we, we, we tend to sort of almost unconsciously ape them here. You know, we had Reagan, then we had Mulroney, we we, we had uh, Obama, then we had Trudeau. Right. You know, there seems to be you know a sort of political movement that catches on there, and we seem to follow it. Doug Ford is a, is a clear and present danger right now to, to, to the Ontario population. One because he's so incompetent, and, and two because he's so aggressive uh, in breaking through norms. However, he seems to have caught a wave that, if we're prognosticating into the future. You know, the, the, the Trump brand, the Trump allure has already peaked. 
and Doug Ford is grabbing onto something that unfortunately is not going to fade that quickly, but it's on the downward slope. And for someone who's got three and a half years left in government, I really don't know what his next play is going to be. I would say, too, just to to pull it back a little bit here, that uh, let's not give Doug Ford uh, more credit than it's due. I think the Ontario Liberal Party did a lot to get Doug Ford elected uh, in the last election uh, and uh, 15 years in government and on and on. And, you know, had it been Patrick Brown, who had been the leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative, I think we would have had Patrick Brown being premier today. Uh, So while there's a certainly, you know, you can make the link between Ford and Trump, absolutely. I think there's also uh, something to be said for the well, context of the time and and how he came to power again a change a desire for a desire for change and heaven help us patrick brown actually had a platform i don't know whether that would have been good or bad when it came <laughs> but there was this great great push to get rid of win to get a change yeah. you know you you did uh, as you know i was doing some calling for for the liberal candidate here for jeff leal and what i was hearing on air was uh, we like jeff can't stand when I've never I haven't under I still don't understand the depth of that personal feeling but that's what you were hearing and it was and Kathleen Wynne lost that election as much as Doug Ford won that election and and again it's a matter of opinion but you know we, we can look at we can look at actual empirical measurements and say that Kathleen Wynne was probably the most qualified person to be premier mm-hmm. but but you're absolutely right the political winds mm-hmm. were against her and you know I certainly don't need to tell the two of you uh, about about you know what it is to be a woman in politics and, and the different standards so i'm not going to man i'm not going to mansplain misogyny to the two of you but there there is no doubt that that is part of what has gone the audience should know that tim is the father of a daughter so <laughs> whatever he says we'll come back to him <laughs> no i just I, i'm just i'm acknowledging it but i'm not going to take up the airtime trying to explain it with people who have experienced it much more firsthand than i than, well, than you I. know funnily enough i experienced a bit of it but a very little bit of it, at least. And maybe I wasn't perceptive enough to realize. But I, I never, you know, I know in one or two cases. But uh, it, I, I never thought it was an overriding factor in my political career. Do you think it's got worse? I think, yeah. I think it probably has. Interesting. I think it's gotten worse precisely because there's been more success. Because people like Sylvia have paved the path for future female women leaders to come forward. And so... I think there's a backlash effect that's happening now that people have uh, taken their place amongst the halls of power, more women, uh, that, that we're seeing backlash to I'm, that. I'm responsible for Not you, no one. <laughs> You've done so, such tremendous yeah, 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 yeah. as have other uh, women leaders like yourself. Uh, but sure. unfortunately, I think when, and, and this is a cycle in feminism mm. and has happened over decades, when there's a great push forward, then comes the backlash and we need to sort of withstand that until we stand up mm-hmm. and push forward again and hopefully we're moving forward but uh yeah you know even as forward a thinking person as lester pearson and he was and pearson was one of the reasons i in fact joined that party one of the women i admired a great deal in politics regardless of whether she was a liberal or ndp because she was both was pauline jewett and pauline figured that she and quite correctly and other people supported her that she deserved a place in a pearson cabinet and she went and put this to Mike Pearson, and Mr. Pearson's response to her was, well, I've appointed Judy LaMarche. Mm. I have my woman. And, and you know, the, the one other thing that we need to add to this is that you know, one of the changes, again, over the last couple of decades has been the growing economic and political power of women. And so one of the undercurrents that I talked about, I mean, I'm as distressed by the rise of the alt-right and populism as anybody else, but I'm seeing something else happening here that that's growing. And when I talked about millennials, that was kind of a you know a clumsy sort of category to put it all in. The real story is is the power of the, of the female electorate uh, that's growing. And again, you see this in elections. You look at the U.S. midterms; it was female voters that made the difference, and not yes. just not just because they voted, but because they ran and they organized. And that's the big change right now. Well, and of course, something that was. Uh, un- well, just not to be seen was not uh, on campuses was uh, the gender ratio in graduating classes in, in things like medicine, uh, you know, um, MBA, engineering, engineering. This is stunning, a stunning change. I, I, I teach math for a living and, and in <laughs> right. academic math classes are two thirds female. Right, right. Uh, Sylvia, before the program, we, we were chatting uh, off mic and uh, uh, I, I confess to uh, voicing a certain sentimentality for 
civility, and I expressed a bit of horror at the amount of sentimentality over uh, well, the passing of uh, certainly uh, Richard Nixon, how th- there were emotions expressed when he passed that certainly weren't in the air when he was doing Watergate. <laughs> Nixon, Nixon particularly, and some of his remaining supporters worked very hard at a revisionist, an early revisionist approach to Nixon. Right. I think one of the things we're seeing as we speak here tonight is the response to the death of George H.W.H. or H.W. Bush. Bush uh, had policies which, which, with which I'm sure probably all of us in this room had some problem with. On the other hand, he was undoubtedly a, a civilized and, uh, and uh, a civilized individual. And as you observed, he spoke in complete sentences. And he spoke in complete sentences. <laughs> and, and, and there was a civility and a dignity to him. And I think part of it is a longing for a return of something like that, which is totally absent right now in, in, in uh, the, the, the Trump White House. And, and what about the same dynamic you're describing mapped onto the federal Canadian political dialogue? I'm saying things on social media these days that you, you that I wouldn't see or wouldn't have read in op-ed letters uh, 15, 20 years ago. You see things on social media we weren't allowed to say 15, 20 or 20. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, fair enough. But so. levels of baiting and disparagement, I mean, Trudeau has been turned into this uh, this uh, incompetent uh, moron. And Excuse me. I mean, yes, I, I, I'm not uh, head and sho- I'm not shoulder to shoulder with everything uh, that the man has done. But give us a break. I'm well, except- uh, he's viewed. Sorry, he, he's viewed outside of Canada very differently. Oh, well, maybe yeah. not in India, but no. uh, you know, with perhaps the exception of India, he's he's viewed outside of Canada as a, you know as 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 a as a as a plus. Aren't you lucky in Canada to have Trudeau? And we respond on social media. The response is, "Are you going to have him?" Etc. I have a good friend in Singapore who, when I was moaning about some of Trudeau's decisions, he said, "Give your head a shake." Ninety yeah. percent of the world's countries would give their right arms and legs. That's to right. Have he's that also he's also leading in the polls right now and this is the thing I was going to, the point is going to bring up about social media is is we're, we're all reeling from the effects of social media you know we the effect of social media particularly the american election you know and, and and what it did but things move very quickly and i think social media has become very balkanized you know facebook is a purview of people my age and older um, yes. And it doesn't resonate much beyond there. There's there's very few people under the Is age of 30. Right? Oh, no, that. very few people. You talk to anyone like, under 30. The only reason you ask someone under 30 why they're on Facebook to be because my dad and mom's on Facebook. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Look. You should listen to our podcast uh, on social oh, yeah. media and politics. Uh, in this oh, very yes, room, yes. Oh, we yeah, had yeah, exactly yeah. this conversation. I can still get that. Yeah. I have missed that. And, I, will, and, I will listen to and it. And Twitter has become the purview of very angry men. The the growth in social media is happening on platforms that I don't. Know, do you have a Do you have an Instagram account, a Snapchat account? That's what I have an Instagram. That's about as far as I'm willing to go yeah. right now. This is, this, is, this is even you getting older now too. What I'm saying is that it's a moving target. We always tend to reflect on the last battle. Yes. And yes. again, I'm I, I'm not trying to come here and speak in a Pollyannish way, right. but. Facebook is not going to have the same effect in future elections that hadn't passed elections. I don't think Twitter is going to have the same effect either. It'll have an effect, but other things are emerging. And it doesn't mean that suddenly everything's going to get better. But I don't fear Facebook and its effects like I did even a year ago. So interesting. You're pretty nasty out there on Facebook. (laughs) All right. Now, in terms of other things that are going on out in the, well, not only the Twitter sphere, but the... the, uh, the environment around us, what do you make of the trends in both technology and corporate decision-making as they impact Peterborough? I mean, we used to be a manufacturing center, uh, and that's an old message. We're not alone in that. I mean, it's ha- it's happened 
Mm. You know, the term the Rust Belt has been around a long time, and that the and Rust now Belt it's is, us. <laughs> well, it, it's been it's been us for it's becoming us for some time. You know, it's 1967. There were six thousand people at General Electric, and thirty thousand probably at General Motors. A thousand at General Motors from Peterborough, and yeah. uh, and uh, you know, the decline of manufacturing has been with us for a long, long time. We've been lucky in Peterborough in a way that we have the regional hospital. We have two post-secondary educational institutions. Uh, we have a, you know, a lot of smaller mm-hmm. uh, industries, although not manufacturing industries. But, uh, but this is what I'm going to segue into a, a, a comment made by our provincial member. Talk about a knee-jerk reaction. <laughs> You blame the past governments, uh, mismanagement of, gov- of governments, not certainly ours. We're going to make Ontario open for business again for the failure of General Motors. It was a, a bunch of balderdash. Uh, uh, our listeners should know that uh, Sylvia penned a, a wonderful uh, well, three hundred so word column. Wonder- four hundred, I got <laughs> four hundred words <laughs> uh, uh, on this very topic. Not everybody thought it was wonderful. I'll well, tell you. by the way, because recently I took issue with one column you wrote, Sylvia. I did not say I really like that column, so I should. <laughs> say that. I really like that one. <laughs> I, should, I, should I really like things that about column. your columns if I'm going to no, criticize. Well, I, that that really, thank you. That, that, no, that really uh, that was written certainly on this for the moment. I read that and I surprised myself. Because as I was watching, and I've had a couple of witty comments about this from people, uh, you know, that uh, I thought the bit of the press conference of Premier Ford's, of Doug Ford, that I saw when he at the very last minute just interjected. And, and I do believe it came from a heart. You know, let me tell you what stress is. And he made some, yes. he made a wonderful statement at that moment. Now he's since blaming other people. But at that moment, the Premier did a good job. And meanwhile, our member, who didn't answer a phone call on the issue, but wrote a statement. And the thing was that it was the fault of, 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 of all the other people, all the other governments who preceded us, or a number of them. Yes. And we're open for business. It had nothing to do with General Motors right. closing the Oshawa plant. And that didn't answer your question at all. I'm sorry. But it was a great answer. And what else matters? <laughs> I, I, I think you look at the local political scene. I mean, this has been sort of a broad argument that's gone on for a long time. And, and what what is the future of Peterborough? And, and, it, and it's begun with a recognition that exactly what we're all agreeing with, and it, it's because it's true. You're not going to go back to the manufacturing yes. hub that Peterborough once was. Uh, it, you know, I'm a history geek, right? So why is Peterborough, why was Peterborough a manufacturing hub? It was because we had ready electricity. Because there's 10 kilometers of rapids from Lakefield to, to the, the foot of, you know, to Scotts Mills, right? And so we had ready cheap electricity. That's why the American Cereal Company came here. That's why the Edison Electric Company came here. And that kind of put the plint. That's why the railroads were built here. That's why that all happened. You don't have industry with just-in-time inventory happening in places like this anymore. If it's going to happen in Ontario, it's going to happen in southern Ontario, which links up to the corridors from Windsor through Buffalo and into New York State. So – you know, there, it's a fantasy to think it's coming back. It's good to see that in general, the opinion leaders and those who actually can make deci- policy decisions in Peterborough have come to recognize that because the thing that has made Peterborough flourish, as Sylvia said, we have in place certain institutions that help it. And we are slowly becoming aware of how we look to other places. Peterborough is a very attractive place to move to because of some, because of the art scene, because of the restaurant scene, because of the natural habitat that we have, because of some of the things that at times have had to been fought for in the city are actually the things that we can sell now for the city. Yes, there was an article in the Globe today about how the the job boom is happening in the GTA, specifically downtown Toronto, in the knowledge sector. And that towns like Oshawa, they didn't mention Peterborough, but you could put it in parentheses, are going to become the bedroom communities. Yeah, and we already are. I mean, I've been making yeah. this argument since we started the show last year that that I, the, the thing that's been missed from a lot of people in the city is how many young professionals have moved to the city and they're invisible mm-hmm. because they work from home generally or they commute to Toronto. Right. I've lived in the city 15 years and I've been commuting for 14 of those years. I have not worked in Peterborough since 2004. Right. Right. The the worst thing <clears throat> when the news came about General Motors. I can imagine how the mayor of Oshawa felt on that occasion mm-hmm. and and how the mayor of Peterborough must have felt with Daryl Bennett when the announcement came regarding General Electric. So I think the worst moment – among the worst moments of my of 15 years as mayor 
I was at a conference out in Vancouver, a Federation of Canadian Municipalities conference, and uh, there was I was paged, and there was a phone call. I knew it had to be serious from the Peterborough Examiner, and they were calling long distance, so that that indicated right away <laughs> this is a serious thing. And the announcement was that outboard marine was leaving, and you realize there is not a thing you can do about that. In fact, we were asked at the time that Quaker was in danger. Uh, the president of Quaker, uh, Morton, Dave Morton at the time, asked us to stay out of it, not to, to try to interfere that they were, you know, they were working with PepsiCo to, to keep it here. But you realize there isn't a thing that you can do to stop that multinational from going. And uh, anyway. Yeah, and you know, it, it, all this makes me think of the um, recent, uh, when I say recent, last year, uh, there was quite a bit of time spent on council about annexation of more industrial lands for to grow grow our economy. And the well, icon... are still necessary. Well, but I'm wondering, industrial, like what? What's going well, on on that uh, land? There's the, a lot of industry in the city. It's not the big-scale, big-scale yeah. GE, but there's quite a lot of industry in the South End. I still remember that chocolate factory we didn't get, and Brampton or someplace else did, and that's when uh, the Reeve of Cabin Monaghan, Neil Cathcart, said to me, not one blade of grass. Well, and we, we missed a we missed a, a plant because of not one blade but of grass. grass. We didn't have the area for it. So I do think that is a high-priority item, actually, despite okay. what we've just said, uh, for the uh, incoming council. To, but they're not going to be building locomotives. They're going to be no, building... No, they're not going to. Uh, okay. They are not going to be building locomotives. You could, I mean, you're, you're, you're a bicycle guy, Bill, and I'm a commuter, so I drive to the South End every day. Go down the South End. There's a lot of manufacturing that goes down there. But again, these are, these are factories that... Uh, uh, you know, maybe employ 20, 30 people, small scale, maybe up eight, 70 or 80. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Shout out to FCI Windows. I put 25 of theirs in my, uh, in my house, and they're made in the South End. So will the knowledge economy eventually get to Peterborough? Will we see that? Will that be on our horizon? Is it not here in part now? I don't know. Lauren, <laughs> I, I, we're all sort of shaking. We're, we're all defaulting here, but, uh, to the to the youngest person in the room. Sure, you you yeah, know this, Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I do think uh, I think that it is here in part, uh, and that there's folks. You know, if you're talking about the young professionals working at home, what is it that they're doing from home? Well, it is probably participating in the knowledge economy in some respect. Uh, so I do think it is here, and I think there's organizations. I think Peterborough Economic Development has certainly recognized that and has been focused both on uh, retention and expansion of existing industry, like the small light manufacturing, as has the chamber, uh, but also stimulating that um, entrepreneurial ecosystem that is going to draw more of those folks into Peterborough. Just, just sure. one point on the deindustrialization of Peterborough. One of the things that will certainly be missing with the absence of, of General Electric from Peterborough is the they were sort of the catalyst for, say, Fisher Gage, mm-hmm. and a lot and a lot of a lot of industrial growth spun out out of what was happening at General Electric, and that is no longer you know going to be a reality. And there will be an impact like that as well from GM. Right? Yes, there are certainly yeah. companies that will be affected by yeah. that. Here. We used to say that the largest employer in Peterborough was General Motors in Oshawa. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I work down in Durham, and uh, I I know a lot of families that I, that I work mm-hmm. with who are, you know, I'm not going to say impacted because that's not a verb, but are suffering the impacts <laughs> of this. Thank <laughs> <Yes, yes. laughs> um, But, you know, there are a couple of uh, students I work with whose parents are directly affected by GM, but a lot of others in the service industry, mm-hmm. in the parts industry, and all, everything else. I mean, you know, any any economic driver is going to have is going to radiate out through the economy, and you take away that many jobs, and yeah, it's a it's a donut hole that can't be filled. But imagine if it was uh, 20 years ago, and it was 30,000 jobs going, not yeah. 3,000. Now. We have, of course, generational change in our, our recent municipal election, and we have a new council. What changes does this new council sort of have in its um, toolbox, maybe even things they're unaware of going forward into next year? What are we going to see differently happen next year, the year after, because of this change? Because we have new positions, for example, uh, we have new deputy mayors, uh, we have new people in finance, new people in police services. What is this going to mean for Peterborough next year? 
just pull up my crystal ball here yes, yes. And look into the future. No, I, I do hope that uh, that uh, that this change uh, comes with some fresh perspectives and perhaps those new folks will be able to look at a problem that's existed as we were talking before now. Um, there was lots on that council agenda last night to deal with and, and none of it was new. You know, these were all issues that uh, the previous council had been dealing with for quite some time. Now, last night was the first full council meeting? There was a very so. brief council meeting where the chain of offices was presented and the list of impo- appointments was revealed and approved. And then there was a uh, budget committee meeting, a finance committee meeting, and then there was a general committee meeting. They had the whole range last night. Now, a- a- any, if we can just do a pr- in parentheses a comment on any of the appointments, any, any thoughts? Is this... Uh Ground shaking, or is this what we expected? Uh, Just going to finish my thought sure, there sure, to say uh, that I do hope that those new voices, new faces, new new appointments, you know, maybe mm. changing some portfolios are able to bring a different perspective to some of those problems that have existed mm. for quite some time. And so that's not to say that there's a silver bullet to fix issues like repairing or replacing the floor at the Memorial Center, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe someone... Or the farmer's market or running the farmer's market. Or the market. farmer's market, that, right. that someone new might be able to come at it from a different approach uh, mm-hmm. and share that and, and hopefully look at it from a different angle that hasn't been considered before. That sure. be you know, and I, it's funny you say that because I, I thought of that last night reading reports uh, from the meeting and thinking, you know, you go through an election, you're victorious, there's an exuberance and everything like that. Then you show up and someone just dumps these like file folders on your <laughs> desk that say PDI, Memorial Center, annexation. It's like they don't they don't go away. And so now the real business of governing happens. Yeah. You find it's much more difficult to govern than it is to oppose. That's why, never, that's, <laughs> yes, that, so that's really why I'll never run. Yeah, yeah. That's why I love campaigns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right, right, right. You're the only one with guts to actually serve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, there, there was, I think, out of the uh, out of the appointments, there was and I may get some pushback here. I think I might. <laughs> I cannot understand why Henry Clark was sidelined almost entirely. Well, entirely from a uh, from uh, the uh, council appointments to standing committees. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we the statement was made in it. No, people had one or two portfolios, and and here is the most experienced member of council, one who certainly is hardworking. Well, and, hopefully they're all ethical and professionally but, a human resources executive. Uh, yeah, and 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 all and you know from a council, we were promised that we try to build bridges, mm-hmm. that the that we try to undo perhaps or get rid of the divisions that that were evident in the last council, and here you take the most experienced person on council who has performed well in his portfolios, whether you agree or disagree with his position. He was a good finance chairman, and he certainly, he was my deputy mayor. He was Paul's deputy mayor. He was, you know, he, and why would you exclude him entirely from a, uh, from a portfolio? Oh, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I, I would say, and I don't know the reasons yeah, uh, and, and, and the, all of the machinations that went into it, but I do think that, you know, we can't discount Andrew Beaver being named first no. deputy mayor. And, and, and Andrew will be a fine first deputy mayor. For sure. Uh, and I do think that that is a, a reach across the aisle mm-hmm. and a, a point yes, to, to sort of inclusion and, and, and representing all constituents. And a different uh, generation. And a different generation. Yeah. Uh, but and I, how will I phrase this in the most respectful way? Uh, I do appreciate, I personally appreciate what Henry's brought, uh, but to say that he has been, was Paul's deputy mayor and then your deputy mayor. And no, then mine first, mayor. then Paul's. Sure, Jack's. the other way around. Thank you, thank <laughs> yeah. you. Uh, but there's something there that speaks to perhaps there is a need for some yeah, change. And, I, I, uh, and to try something new. And as you will know, and we discussed beforehand, these appointments aren't locked in for four years, no. and there certainly could be change. Who knows? Uh, when... Perhaps there's been more work afoot, and people have had a chance to work together. And I wouldn't. I, I I think that Andrew Beamer will be a superb first deputy mayor. I don't know the qualifications of Mr. Pappas to be finance chairman, and it's going to be a very challenging position in in this upcoming council. But if you want to change those, I mean that's fine. But give the give the other individual another portfolio. Don't in, in exclude him <laughs> entirely. From uh, the council portfolios, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, especially when you're giving one or two, uh, giving two or three to other people. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the rationale if you're trying to build bridges? 
between uh, supposedly the old six and the new and the old five, mm-hmm. you know, why would you leave him out entirely? Don't make him deputy mayor. I can remember, for example, uh, there was I had occasion. It was would have been as if I had excluded Jack Doris from uh, you know who was the most experienced member of councils I headed from any serious consideration for a serious portfolio. I wouldn't have done that. Would make no sense. Listen, I, I again, we can only speculate. I, the only pushback I have is there's been an awful lot of ink spilled about Henry Clark lately. Well, uh, you know, and, and and that 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 seems to be the story that's come out of the first week of council is that you know, Henry has been removed, been replaced in several things. The pushback is, I, you know, that and, and I know he's your friend, but that embarrassing letter by Paul Ayotte today, where he he made the claim that Diane showed no impartiality. That uh, he makes the claim that the deputy mayor is Kemi Apako. He, he doesn't. He completely skips over it's Andrew Beamer, and as as Lauren said, I actually thought that was a rather bold move. Setting aside the Henry Clark thing for a minute, we, we can do that. But uh, I, I want to interject for a minute. Yeah. Whether Henry Clark's my friend or not does not no, make a difference. I'm talking about Polly. No, but you did say I know he's your friend, and you've yeah. done that before. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me whether Henry's my friend or not. I'm looking at it hopefully objectively. Fair enough. No, no, I was just talking about Polly. I had to say well, I was okay. going to, in all generosity, you know, he's a friend of yours, but to criticize, I think his letter was an embarrassment. I really do. And if you want, I can quote the exact portion where he, he well, makes he makes two factual errors in it. And what he in his attempt to criticize Diane and listen, everyone can have their opinion criticized person. That's that's perfectly acceptable. But uh, in the actual article, he actually makes two factual errors, and I think we should put them on the record. Uh, the first error he makes is he talks about um, one of her group of five from the last council takes over as finance chair, and a new councillor with no experience on council is appointed deputy mayor. There was another female member of council, if that was a criterion. Uh, sorry, he said criteria, it should be criterion, one with experience, but not of the group of five, that could have filled the role so much for impartiality. His argument is that she showed no impartiality when she reached across the aisle, took the person the most politically away, across the spectrum from her, and Andrew Beamer, a conservative, a Bennett ally, she appointed as 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 a deputy mayor. Now, whether it should have been somebody else or something is no, fine. Sure. But that's a false argument to say she should, showed no impartiality. And one more thing he said. He said, the higher up you go, the more help you need. So I don't understand not taking advantage of the experience available at the council table in the finance portfolio. She appointed Dean Pappas, the second longest serving councillor, and a small businessman, a person who's balanced the books. Now, whether he'll do a good job or not. Yep. But again, yep. he's trying to say that if it's not Henry Clark, all these other people are ill-qualified. And well, I think that Dean Pappas has a resume that actually suits the finance portfolio. While we're talking about local journalists, excluding the local journalist in the room here, uh, there, there was an article in the Examiner uh, that I, I read as sort of a uh, forensic hit piece on Stephen Wright. Did you catch that? Yeah. What, it, what was that about? Well, that was about a story that apparently came out after the election. Uh, why people, why it wasn't, no, no, I heard about it some weeks ago after the election. I wasn't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, but I did call Peterborough this week and said, this do with it mm-hmm. what you feel you should, and their decision was not to do anything with it. The I, I don't want to delve too much into the story tonight, There, I think, but there there was a technicality involved in the decision that was finally made regarding Mr. Wright. But if you go in, but for Wright to call that trash journalism, I don't call it trash journalism at all. And if you're going into the public forum, mm-hmm. you should be prepared for your past to catch up with you. Now, the, uh, you may wish to explain what happened with that story because uh, Mr. Wright was accused of something. He was found not guilty on what appears to have been a technicality. It's more than a technicality. It, it is. There are two things. And actually, there was a good editorial today in the, in the Peterborough, Peterborough Examiner that defended and actually attacked. And attacked. That was but, yesterday, but, was it? Jim was it yesterday? Yeah. yeah. And that, that was a good editorial yeah. saying exactly what you said. And I agree with that, that calling it trash journalism doesn't forward mm-hmm. the conversation. But it points out that it's more than just a technicality. It points out that there were two things in the ruling. And the other was that... Uh, that he had actually was making sincere effort to set up his business. Yeah. So it was more, yes, I just, I've seen that a lot on Facebook, yeah. people saying, we got off on a technicality yeah. and we don't want that, that meme to continue. Uh, I, the thing that amazes me, I mean, I was talking, you know, early in the summer saying, watch out for Stephen Wright because I think he's got a lot of support in Northcrest. 
you could have Googled this. I knew this years ago that he <laughs> had this trouble. Like it really, it wasn't exactly something buried under a rock. So mm-hmm. uh, the timing came out the way it did. Who knows why it did? It was very breathless and sensational. But I remember reading it going, what, is this the first time someone wrote an article on this? Like I, I was kind of surprised. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> And I'll just uh, put on the communications hat and say, you know, regardless, again, to Sylvia's point about how he felt about the piece being done when it was, uh, to call something trash journalism is is uh, not the best uh, crisis communications approach you want to take. (laughs) Fair Uh, enough. uh, You know, uh, should uh, other counselors hopefully not have to deal with something similar, but Mm -hmm. I would encourage them to uh, get ahead of the story if they can and uh, not to... Uh, not to throw the the baby out with the bathwater. No, and, and I know Stephen listens to the show, and and and, well, I, and, and I think I think he, you know, I I, well, I, I hope I hope he gets through this. But my advice would be put put a put a. a He's let the narrative linger, right? He let he let the initial story did. He he needs to supply a counter narrative if he wants to make a case for himself. And I thought it was interesting, not that it's related to the story at all, but uh, before the lights went out on uh, politically speaking the other night, uh, the first guest uh, that I wasn't on the show that night, but the first guest that night was Stephen Wright. I think Jay is doing the the new councillors primarily first, and uh, Mr. Wright was making. Then Councillor-elect Wright was making uh, the case for a full-time council position, which obviously pays more. He feels the council should be making more money. And uh, you ran – it was a part-time position when you ran. Uh, they can, we can have a discussion over the next term of council, if they will, if they want to go for full-time councillors. I would suggest if they do, they'll be half the number of councillors that there are now if you're going full time but I, I just the idea and I'm curious as to how many other counselors but the idea is somehow right away you go you know I, I've, uh, I'm going to be full time and counselors should be paid better well, that, that maybe Craven on his part. It may be selfish. Yeah, it, it is. It is a. It is a legitimate argument. I mean, I, again, I don't know Stephen's motivation for bringing it up, but just to be clear, this is actually a, a, a very strong argument made about the democratization of municipal politics. Is that part of the problem? Is is that it does tend to favor those who have other sources of income. I mean, uh, Diane Terrian has made the point Diane, that if we don't yeah. raise the the yeah. stipend, no young people, very few young people, can afford to do. It. Yeah, it, it, it's true. So, I mean, it's what, why he did it. I don't. I, I don't know why he brought it up. But I just. Yeah. It, it actually is a very legitimate argument. I don't think the city can afford it. I, so I don't well, know where the money comes from. But would you be better off one councillor per ward? No, I don't think the city can no. afford it either. And did I tell the story before on here when I first became mayor in '85? And the mayoralty was part time. Bob Barker was considered part time, and there was a citizens committee set up, and it, which made the mayoralty full time and left the councillors. But I had a call from the Toronto Star who was, uh, they were surveying council salaries in the area, and in Ontario. And the woman said to me, uh, the reporter, do you realize you're the lowest paid mayor of any municipality your size <laughs> in the province? And I said, well, clearly I'm not doing it for the money. You know, yes. but, and, and there's an argument I, my friend Paul Wilson always makes when it comes to this, and that's the element of public service that, you know, should still be a component of 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 serving municipally. Sure. Absolutely. And I will just say, you know, I, I don't think that anyone here or there is advancing the argument that councillors or yeah. the mayor should be, um, you know, compensated generously. But okay. I think the point comes back to who is able to run yeah. for office. And yes. Not just young people, but let's think about the different demographics who might mm-hmm. be holding down multiple jobs right now, can't yeah. make ends meet as it is, would never think about entering politics yeah. because it's just a part-time gig and they can't yeah. make ends but w- what if you have a full-time job and then you're going to uh, are you going to run for uh, another full-time job and give up the full-time job you have we could have a long discussion about well, this and, and i don't know what the answer and is. i don't but that's actually something i know in, in some of the discussions a couple of years ago banding about names of you know mayoralty candidates out there who might want to run uh there were a couple of names that came up they're like no they, they're not going to take the pay cut to be mayor yeah. Right. Now, spe- and the uncertainty of yeah, the future. Exactly, yeah. Now, speaking of mayors and campaigns, how did the, the recent election unfold? How did the Tarian campaign manage s- such an outcome, s- such a dramatic change? Uh, uh, and I think 
partially it was a superb use actually of social media. They really ran a good campaign on social media. Well, now that's but, interesting because you you were out of town. I was out of town. And you were watching it on social media. And I was watching it on right. social media. And the other thing is I think uh, – certainly doesn't explain the margin of victory, but I think Daryl Bennett lost that election as much as Diane Tarion. Not as much as, but it was oh, a strong anti, I think, Bennett vote for whatever reason out there. I, okay. I would chime in and agree. Yeah, it, it certainly I think uh, and, you know, I'll out myself here as working on <laughs> Diane Tarion's campaign. So right. uh, I'm not uh, totally unbiased, uh, but I do think we managed to run a pretty error free, um, nice. strong campaign. You know, all the elements of a campaign were there knocking on doors and the mm-hmm. social media and yeah. advertising and it had it all. But that's only half the story. And the other half of the story is uh, that uh, people were tired of uh, Daryl Bennett. Uh, and we knew that when we we were knocking on doors and people were saying, you know, well, I'm a card-carrying conservative or I'm or I don't vote or I whatever. I'm not from perhaps who you might think Diane's typical demographic might be and I'm voting for Diane. Mm-hmm. And Diane, it, Diane's one of those politicians that I think is constantly underestimated. Uh, I think people look at you know, maybe look at her public service and look at her and they, they have a certain assumptions about her. I've, I've noticed this dynamic with her over the years where People might have an opinion of her. They might have certain assumptions about her. When they meet her, I think they develop more confidence in her. And, you know, is that a character issue? Is it just the skill of a politician? But And that doesn't last forever. That's a surprise. I mean, Trudeau had that going from the 2015 election. People constantly underestimated how sharp and, and good a politician he was. And I think that, that certainly helped Terry in, in this cycle as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, are there any other things that uh, that campaign did well? that uh, led to the outcome we saw. Well, they had very experienced, and we have an example sitting in this room, (laughs) they had very, very talented and very experienced people working for them from both the NDP and Liberal campaigns, and it was almost like just move over. Uh, in some cases, uh, and and these these were very capable political organizers, and and they knew what they were doing. And there were there were lots of people who who were involved in that campaign who were not political organizers who, mm-hmm. who did not have experience actually, yeah. and I think uh, kudos to to Andy Craig who managed mm-hmm. the campaign who figured out a way to bring Get people the, yeah. in to to make sure they had a meaningful experience that they mm-hmm. were able to contribute their skills whether they'd been on whether they'd ever yeah. knocked on a door before or not. Well, that's good. Uh, and, yeah. and he you know the team folded those folks in mm-hmm. and I think that robust team approach mm-hmm. uh, really made a difference. And you know I. I I'm wondering if there was uh, an element of uh, what we saw, at least on television up, he- up here on the, on the web, of the Obama campaign. Working on Diane's campaign, Diane Tarion's campaign, was fun. Yeah. In other words, you show up. You, you, there was quite a collection of people in the office. You'd go knocking on doors. It wasn't this laborious drudgery. It was, I mean, it was hard work, a lot of shoe leather. Yeah. Um, in fact, some people in this room, a lot of shoe leather. <laughs> but... Uh, it was enjoyable. There was a social side to it uh, that uh, I, I didn't sense in the other campaign. Well, I would say it's always more fun to work on a winning campaign. <laughs> it's always more fun and, to win. And, and you know when you're working on a winning campaign yeah. and you know when you're working on a losing yeah. one and morale and keeping people engaged yeah. and moving when it is clearly a losing campaign. Whether you've got the greatest yeah. candidate in the riding or not – there's a different atmosphere, and mm-hmm. uh, and so that we had that going yeah. for us, certainly, that it felt that way. and From a distance, sure. and I, it was from a distance, it was from up on McDonald Street, but I was looking at the at, at Sean Conway's campaign uh, provincially, and while they didn't win, they did extremely well, and I had the feeling there was an element of that there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't win, but by golly, they, they ran a good campaign, and a lot of young people, a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah, and this is, you know, step back, just toe back into the, into the macro. This is some of the stuff I was talking about before, about, you know, there's a, the, the Darian campaign, the Conway campaign, successful campaigns, the Monsef campaign a couple of years ago, did the basic things that campaigns are supposed to do really, really well. And, and Sylvia, you went at great length about something, you know, identifying voters and canvassing and knowing, they did all that correctly. And getting your but, vote out. But there is a kind of, and it's not new, it's been done before. 
before, but there is a kind of new energy and a younger demographic that are buying into politics. They feel like a sense of belonging. It's it's of a different nature than some of us old veterans. What we remember of campaigns, which had a more sort of pseudo-military feel to them, very hierarchical, sort of send the troops out. You See, know, what the, campaigns you were? <laughs> <laughs> just in terms, just in terms of the hierarchical organization. Tim Etherton's yeah. past will be a subject of another show. <laughs> yes. I don't know. I was trained by both the Liberals and the NDP, so uh, somewhere in between there. The first campaign I worked on was conservative, so maybe that's where it what? comes from. Yeah, I've done it all. Um, but but that that I, that idea of belonging, that idea of a kind of uh, kind of holistic, and I don't mean that in a new agey sense. I mean that a complete commitment to the idea mm-hmm. and where it's going and your participation, mm-hmm. where you feel centered in what you're doing. That's an incredibly powerful thing. You can harness that politically. Now, I, I'm just wondering, the developer and the real estate interest groups may feel that they lost this election, but many citizen groups and individuals feel they have won. I'm just wondering, it might be easy to cast this election as a victory for generational change or greater citizen engagement, but has anything been lost? And what does this council need to be aware of in order to meet the high expectations of its supporters? Well, they should be aware they promised too much. Ah. Did they? Oh, yeah. You can't fulfill 39 promises, which I think. uh, And uh, I've already heard, because I had to have my car fixed, so I had drivers back and forth, about the speed limit. They are not surely going to do that, are they? And a lot of people think they are going to do that. The taxi... Driving community is not popular well, with this. This is a struggle community from Subaru, but the oh, was, right, right, okay. It's not, it was not popular. No, I, I have a feeling there are a lot of promises out there that which are easy to make. And a statement made by by Councillor Pappas the other night that the campaign was a referendum on PDI. The campaign was not a referendum on PDI, and and don't you know? And I gather from people from various campaigns at the doors, if of the two issues, the Parkway may have been the larger issue, but. But, uh, but no, it wasn't a referendum on the PDI. Or if it was, how come Andrew Beamer's back or Henry Clark's back? Or you know, I, I, I agree. I, you can't take you can't no, take an election I, I, take I it as a referendum. I, 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 I swallowed my popcorn when he said that. Well, and that, that yes, that I, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. <laughs> there is a huge public opposition to PDI now. We'll see what happens. Well, uh, we'll see what happens when people sit down and look at the books and listen to the arguments, and, and we'll have. But. PD, we talked about this in a previous show. PDI is a hot button issue in part because everyone hates Ontario Hydro, and the, and and that's just a knee jerk reaction that maybe doesn't make sense. But boy, people really don't like that sale out there. However, you're right; you can't look at well, an election called a referendum on a single issue. Understands what the sale is. Some people figure we're selling the camels. <laughs> All right, we're down. We're down to last words here. So, final final comments on 2019. What are we going to see? What may be coming to bite us that we haven't? Thought of yet? Oh, oh in palace intrigue in the federal. We have a federal election. And yes. palace intrigue in the federal Conservative Party. Get ready. Get ready. Oh, really? Because okay. the, the knives are out for sheer. He may survive, but you've got a couple camps that are trying really hard to get back in there. You've got McKay, Peter McKay, trying to get back in there. You've got well, Doug Ford has blown it because he can never win the French vote. You've got Mulroney trying to get his daughter back in there, and you have Stephen Harper. And if you think for a minute that oh. he isn't planning to sneak back in there and make a comeback, then you're not paying oh, attention. Oh, oh. Lauren? Uh, Stephen Harper, I believe, was in Peterborough this very week, in fact, meeting with some local conservatives, and that was very under the radar, but uh, some under photos the ra- surfaced that under uh, the radar. seemed back. to suggest that he was here. Yeah, Sylvia? Final thoughts. Final thoughts. <laughs> she was terrified. <laughs> the idea of Harper returning. What do you think the influence of Maxine Bernier is going to be on, on the well, concern? Yeah. Peter McKay, of them all, I mean, at least he's a progressive. He sold the progressive conservatives out, but he is nominally still a reasonably red Tory. Uh, I might be, you know, but the idea of Harper returning. I, I was I was going to have a good night's sleep tonight. <laughs> the problem is that they, they pulled it so effortlessly in Ontario. They jumped in. They they got rid of Brown. They put Ford in. Everyone thinks they can do it. And Harper really oh, that, wants that. That was an inside job. Absolutely. All right. It really was. All right. And as the gloves come off, thank you so much, Lauren Hunter, Tim Etherington, and Sylvia Sutherland for coming by. This was uh, our last program of this term. And as Leonard Cohen kicks us out, we will be on at a new time in January. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the new year.